is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, Richard and I talk motorsport liveries through the years, and we go behind the scenes at Wooden Mortimer with some top tips on the classic Jaguar market. JECpodcast.com Hi, yeah, I hope you're well. Wayne Scott here with the 28th instalment of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Amazingly, I managed to get out in the cars again last weekend, attending a little show, but an enjoyable one nonetheless, at the Three Counties Showground in Malvern. And I promised to mention some of those of our regular listeners that were there from the JC uh, that attended that show. So hello in particular to Nick, who wanted me to mention him, who was there in his Jaguar Mark II. Now, don't forget, if you're a Jaguar fan, then you really need to join up for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club membership. It offers fantastic benefits, and one of the key ones being a full-colour, 130-page glossy magazine, the Jaguar Enthusiast, that is included in your membership. It comes out every month and has articles on Jaguars from our editor Nigel Thorley and his huge team of contributors that cover every aspect of Jaguar, from pre-war swallows to the latest all-electric SUVs. The November 2020 issue is in production as we speak, and this month includes new Jaguar model information and pictures relating to the SUVs, XFs and XEs. Of course, we announced the facelift versions of those from Jaguar on the news pages of the website last week. Classic XJ content is rich in the November issue of the Jaguar Enthusiast magazine with the introduction of the pre-production build car number 2 XJ Coupe, now found and owned by one of our members. The article includes info on the car and this is going to lead on to a series of articles as a professional restoration continues on that very special model. We're out and about as well as people have found ways to still enjoy their Jaguars during lockdown and F-Type's been to France covering some World War II connections and an X350's had a trip to the northeast for a socially distanced break. There's the story of the Jaguar V8 engine as well from Paul Skilleter and we start talking about the E-Type ahead of its 60th anniversary and the acquisition of a very well-known E-Type from the 1980s and the details on a lot of modification work to the car uh, to follow in future issues to make it a more usable and practical car today. Just an example of some of the articles you can enjoy when you join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and you get your magazine every month. Make sure you join us now at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Today button and it's very easily done online. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. We continue now with more memories from a lifetime in motorsport with Richard West. Hi, Richard. Hello, Wayne. How are you today? Very well, thanks. Yeah, so uh, there are obviously some very iconic liveries in the history of motorsport. And when you talk about liveries on racing cars, you're immediately, your thoughts are drawn to, of course, the silk-cut Jaguars, the Gulf Porsches of the early 1970s, and, of course, the man that pioneered branding on cars and team clothing, Bob Tullius's Group 44. But it has been something of a progression through time with the history of motorsport sport hasn't it it has indeed wayne and uh, at times um, the livery on cars has been a very contentious issue within racing teams between the marketing department and of course the design department because when you sit down to design the livery on a racing car you're given an outline drawing and of course you know being a marketing man or an ex-marketing man in formula one and sports cars you see this lovely amount of space and you know you do this fantastic design livery on the car and then the first time you walk down into the workshop and you see the prototype the designers have cut great big holes in the side panels and the doors and put vents in the roof and move the rear wing in plates completely and you end up with something that looks nothing like the drawing that you've got in your hand um but it's always been that way if you if you go right back um in time clearly we all know that race cars or majority of us would know that race cars pretty much were in the national colors of the countries that were entering them you know anything red came from italy british racing green and of course the silver arrows the mercedes it was it was a fascinating one because mercedes engineers all those years ago 
decided actually not to paint the cars because in those days paint was quite a heavy material and they felt that by polishing back the aluminium the car would be more slippery through the air and that indeed was the case and that was one of the things that made the Silver Arrow so successful in their era in those early days of racing because the car was more slippery through the air and the early designers realised that long before others who were still painting their cars in their national colours. Yeah, and livery has become part of the racing strategy at times uh, as you look back on some key points in motorsport history. And it all began really in the 1950s when the MG Works team realised that the locals on the Coupe des Alpes were jumping out in front of uh, cars that weren't red because, of course, they knew that all of the Italian cars would be in the national colours of red. So they let those cars go through. So MG very cleverly decided to paint all of the MGs red and uh, they never had a problem with locals jumping out in front of them on the road ever again but of course as technology's moved on livery has become more important but also you've seen it as part of the strategy of a race team as well and tell us about the luminescent paint schemes that you remember well first of all that's a fascinating story about mg i didn't know that i've just learned something which is amazing because you know it, that was a very clever move by mg and, and a way of overcoming those partisan crowds um when i when i'm going back to your question there about the the luminosity on cars when i went back to twr in 89 um the cars looked good. They had that, those famous sort of uh, ears on the front of the car going over the top of the headlights, the Jaguar ears. But the branding was starting to look a little bit dated. And working with the late Ron Elkins, who was Jaguar's motorsport manager at the time, um, he and I had various meetings with Tom, and they finally agreed to allow us to look at the branding on the cars. We simplified it greatly, the purple and white scheme on the 89 uh, car in a design studio, but it wasn't until 90 that we applied the design. But what we did experiment with at Le Mans in 89 was um, fluorescent decals because clearly you know you've been there many times uh, despite the lighting and the, the lights that the cars carry on them for identification purposes and things different colored lights it's actually quite hard when you're tired to recognize cars so we had a great design studio in Oxford who produced some fantastic very very high luminosity decals and uh, numerals for the cars and we ran them as a test in 89. And when we saw the photography, first of all, we were absolutely astounded because you get this remarkable flare back from the car, which makes for really good photography. But during one of the tests that we actually ran prior to going to Le Mans, up and down a runway in the middle of the night with lots of spotlights, we realized that you could see the cars much more clearly. So luminosity was immediately a favorite. And by the time we got there in 1990, Virtually every car that you saw on the grid had uh, luminous decals because it just made identifying the cars so much easier in those dark and foggy hours in the early morning as they come roaring round and into the pits. And modern racing cars are built with such small tolerances on every aspect of the racing car design, aren't they? That actually paint technology is having to move to make paint lighter. It sounds mad, but it's true. Yeah, um, a guy by the name of George Langhorn. I don't know if George ever listens into the podcast, but I hope he does. George was the uh, the main the paint master at McLaren throughout my tenure there, and right the way through until recent years. I think he may have taken semi-retirement recently. But George always said, you know, the uh, when you asked him about who was the most responsible for the car, he would always smile and say the paint always crosses the line first. But um, one of the battles that all teams have is keeping to the weight limit, and I think I'm right in saying. A current F1 car carries less than one and a half kilos of paint for those remarkable paint jobs that you see on the cars. And also the decal technology has come a very, very long way. Um, one of my first jobs at Williams back in 84, Peter Collins, the team manager, the Australian team manager, had me decaling up Keke Rosberg and Jacques Lafitte's car. And it was an absolute nightmare because you were using effectively industrial fablon, that horrible thick old stuff, about three quarters of a millimetre thick. And to try and get that to curve around lines on the bodywork, etc., was very difficult. And in those days, of course, we used pinstriping tapes and all sorts of things. But in the 90s, it came a long, long way very, very quickly. First of all, the materials, as you rightfully say, were becoming lighter and lighter. And companies like Sickens and others started to develop really, really lightweight paints with vibrant colours. But the colour is also a big issue. If you think back to the Camel Lotus days, you know, with Senna and Nakajima, those yellow and blue contrast worked incredibly well. But in 86, when Rosberg drove for McLaren, Marlborough came up with the idea for the Esteril Grand Prix that they would like to promote two brands, the well-known red and white brand, 
but they also wanted to promote Marlboro Lights, um, and the, the, the packs are gold and white. And when we actually sprayed a car gold and white and we went and tested, when we photographed it and filmed it, everybody was horrified because it came out on TV as brown and white. So, in fact, the car actually had to be luminous yellow and white so that when it was viewed on television screens at that time and that level of technology, it came across as gold and white. So enormous challenges are always there. And, of course, what you're doing with the car's livery is you're trying to give the maximum return for investment for the sponsors and the partners and the technical partners that are there. But you do have to work very, very closely, all joking aside, with the technical team because clearly they're continually developing the car. And livery changes happen frequently and often, although the general public may not see them, in order to actually accommodate those continuous changes that happen on a sports car, a Formula One car or even a touring car. Well, we can't talk about liveries and sponsorships without giving a nod to Bob Tullius and Group 44. And of course, he pioneered really the relationship between the team strip, the branding of a team and their title sponsor racing. Things like the XKE in the Sports Car mm. Club of America races and later, of course, the uh, the precursor to the Group C cars uh, in the early 1980s and, uh, and when you put it into context at a time when really a sponsor would be lucky to have something embroidered on someone's overalls he had Quaker State signed up and emblazoned with that very famous and iconic green and white livery across cars for over 18 years which was at the time something unheard of in the 1960s wasn't it it was indeed, and I think, you know, people often talk about Colin Chapman and the Gold Leaf team, Lotus cars as well in Formula One, and I think between the two of them, they really were pioneers because they, as you rightfully say, you know, it wasn't even as scientific as embroidering. I'm sure you can remember seeing overalls where people used to stitch great thick sort of canvas embroidered badges, you know, and stitch them onto their Nomex suits. Bob and Colin both understood the corporate need and the corporate culture, and therefore... Bob did a particularly fine job, as you say, with Quaker State, the whole Group 44 branding, and Colin with Gold Leaf Team Lotus with Graham Hill in those early days. They stood out from the crowd, and in fact, both of those guys equally, I think, demand you know enormous respect for being able to really put their heads in the place of the corporate businessman and say, if my brand is really that important, how can I transfer that to a race car? And I think without them, and what certainly Ron Dennis did in the 80s and 90s, the way he understood paint finish and the way that cars should look and the attention to detail and the proing up of the sizes of the logos. It sounds like it's almost OCD behaviour, but in fact, when you see a racing car that's been decaled well and the Group 44 cars, the Silk Cup Jaguar, the Marlboro McLarens, they still look as sharp today as they did the day they rolled out for the press call. Absolutely right. And... Uh... Uh, another great insight there from Richard West. And one of the liveries that you'll see on the JC racing grids throughout the season, very strong branding, is that, of course, of Swallow's independent Jaguar. And Tom Robinson follows now with his latest motorsport diary. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, last week we talked about the JC track day from a novice point of view and your first time out on track. So hopefully that helped with some of you that are going to be first time out on track at Castle Coombe. So this week we've been preparing all of the cars ready for the track day and we've also got the date of the next JC Toyo Tires Championship round at Castle Coombe conveniently. So that is the Saturday. So we're up there on the Tuesday and we're also racing there on the Saturday. So this week we've been busy preparing all of the cars ready for the track day. As I said, we are offering passenger rides all day. Um, we're going to be taking the Jaguar JP1. We're also taking both of the XKR Palmer cars we have here on site at the moment and we'll also be taking my xjr6 now um, we have been carrying out preparation across all of these vehicles this week so i thought i'd just give you a bit of a brief overview of, of what we've done so the the jaguar xkr palmer car um, that's um, not been used at all this year with there being no shows so we've given that a full inspection and an alignment setup similar to what we'll do with my my car there's not as many features to adjust on these so we just make sure they're well within specs and we have actually had to put new tires on this one ready 
for the track day just purely because it hasn't been used much and we're starting to get tyre um, deterioration which is a little bit of a shame now um, with the other XKR it's actually a little bit of a first um, for the track day now we've been busy over the winter this is with our own XK Palmer car um, developing a manual gearbox conversion for the XK 150s so this is actually now fitted to our Palmer car and we're going to be testing it up at Castle Coombe so that'll be a little bit different having a manual gearbox to to see what how it performs on track now the Jaguar JP1 is the kind of single seater based um, application and this uses a Jaguar 3 litre V6 and it is a purpose built race car so there's no fundamentals of any GT or road going saloons on this it's purely built off a tubular chassis so this one does take quite a lot of time preparing there's a lot of differences on this car and there's quite a lot of um, more bespoke motorsport components on this so we do have to strip it um, all of the fiberglass and carbon fiber body right the way back to get anything on the, to this it's not like lifting the bonnet on some of the the other saloons and, and xks that we race so we've stripped it right the way back and we can then assess all of the gearbox engine and we'll do a full fluid change on the jp1 as well before it's used that has had a fair amount of use this year being the fact that we've been able to do track days with it so um, we just need to really run through all the geometries and change all the oil now with it being a dry sump system and it does have a six speed sequential Kulin gearbox as well at the back there they are all interlinked so it is a little bit awkward to change the gearbox and engine oil on that it's just a little bit time consuming being a dry sump set so that's our plans with that and then also obviously because we're racing the car at Castle Coombe on the Saturday we really need to get most of the prep done by the end of this week on the XJR6 of mine as well so Donington we had no issues um, and we give it a, a quick once over on the ramp and, and last week we didn't find anything obvious which was good news now unfortunately we've had quite a few hours spare this week to, to really delve into the car in detail and we have found a little bit of a problem now unfortunately I don't know when this is exactly when this has happened but it was definitely in race two. Um, there was quite a lot of cars that were off the track, so I don't know if that's something to do with it, whether a stone has come up and hit the front intercooler, but unfortunately we've got quite a substantial crack along the front intercooler. Now, I'm glad we spotted this, because if this was to have failed, we've lost um, most of our boost from the supercharger, which would reduce the power massively. So it was only just starting, so in race two we must have been losing power, but not, not a huge amount. So we are going to have to get a new intercooler made for Tuesday, which we're in the process of manufacturing now, and we'll have that all in Tuesday ready to test. Now, one of the other items we've been able to now rectify is, unfortunately, we didn't get the parts in time for Donington for the gearbox. So we've now got all the components of the gearbox and we've got that rebuilt and it's all back assembled into the car. Now, the rest of the checks really are quite simple. Obviously, Donington was a great result of us having a win. So we know that the car is very well set up and hopefully on Tuesday, I'll have a little bit of time just to dial the dampers in and get it ready for the race there on Saturday. Now, I'm really looking forward to um, Carl's Coombe on Saturday. Unfortunately, it's not a championship round for points, so it doesn't affect our standings in the championship. I think we've ended up second overall this year and set second in class and for the points overall second, which we are really, really pleased about. It's, it's such a shame that it's a shorter season and we don't have another championship round to try and compete. I think James has actually won it this year on points, but we have done really well with qualifying and some of our results, so we are generally really pleased. Um, and hopefully next year we can have a good shot at the title um, now on Saturday um, we have a qualifier in two races and we haven't actually raced at Castle Coombe um, for a while actually it's not always on our calendar so Castle Coombe is my local circuit so I am really looking forward to racing there again um, it's not quite the same doing a track day there you don't get the same feel with um, with the large number of um, cars on the grid etc so um, hopefully we can get some good times in and qualify well because unfortunately it is quite hard to overtake at Castle Coombe being so narrow so should be really good fun with uh, the big saloons and the GTs there anyway. So hopefully we'll catch up with some of you on Tuesday up at Castle Coombe. And as I said, we are doing passenger rides all day in all four of the cars. So you're more than welcome to sign up via the JEC for a passenger ride and look forward to catching up then. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk.
Well, this week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're going to find out a little bit more about a new business you've joined with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club called Wood and Mortimer. They're based down in Chelmsford, and joining me on the phone now is Paul Fox. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hi, Wayne. Hi. We've pulled you away from your, no doubt, busy workshops down there in Chelmsford, <laughs> um, packed, no doubt, full also of fantastic classic cars and uh, classic racing cars as well, because, of course, you are involved heavily in motorsport. But uh, before we delve our way through your workshops, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your own journey into classic cars and, and everyone who works <laughs> in the industry has a passion themselves, don't they? So what's yours? <laughs> Well, um, I've always, always loved cars, and I can put that down to my grandfather, who was a very, very big uh, Jaguar enthusiast, and uh, goes all the way back to uh, 1973, believe it or not, being an air cadet, and uh, my grandfather uh, taking me to um, to the uh, squadron meets uh, in his wonderful um, uh, Jaguar XJ6. He had several after that as well. So um, I've always loved Jaguars, really, from 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 him, really. But I've been involved in um, the motor industry from a very early age, pro- earlier on in uh, in insurance and uh, financial services, as we call it now. And uh, I worked in Detroit, um, USA, uh, supporting the motor and motor industry there in the 1980s. And then I stayed in the city um, and got. F- completely involved in uh, in classic cars probably about sort of 10 12 years ago now um so uh but it's always been a passion i, I particularly love uh, uh jaguars um and uh alphas as well probably shouldn't say that but i do like an alpha as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So many people that I talk to on the podcast, and myself included, our passion generally stems from our fathers, doesn't it? It gets handed down to yes. us at some point yes, in childhood. Right. At some point when we're yes. young, we have a we hold a spanner or sniff a bit of castrol, and that's us. You know, that's right. Seeing a, seeing an XJ6 in the workshop this morning, I had a quick flashback to my uh, grandfather. So, uh, so yes, it's it's all very personal, and they're those sort of cars as well, aren't they? You know, for memories. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you mentioned they're going over to Detroit in the 1980s. Tell us more about that. It was a very exciting time. I went over in 1984 and really the American car industry uh, was was pretty much on its knees really at that point. And that was the time that um, Lee Iacocca was fired from uh, as the vice president of Ford and then surprisingly popped up at Chrysler um, and went to the government for, for, for the, the American government for money and managed to, to, to turn it round. One of the great sort of um, success stories of, of the motor industry. And it was very interesting being in Detroit at that time because um, all Detroiters and most of Michigan all just bought American cars. But of course, the rest of the US, they were buying Japanese cars and German Volkswagens and all of this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, Detroit really was going through a very difficult time. And unfortunately, it hasn't really got any better since then. Um, but it was a fascinating insight to the big world of, of, um, of, of the motor industry, really, from especially from a financial services point of view you know america as you mentioned has changed beyond all recognition of what it was 40 years ago meanwhile over in china things are going mad aren't they over there well that's right and of course um you know talking about china of course um you know they're the the ones with the money at the moment and uh you can also see as well the the sort of chinese uh influence on car design you know, if you look at BMWs at the moment, and even Jaguars, uh, they've all got uh, this, um, you know, this quite large face on them. Uh, and, um, you know, that is sort of a, a more of a Chinese um, sort of taste issue. Um, I quite like it, to be honest. I like the cars to be identified. I know that BMW have recently come in for a little bit of criticism here in Europe. Um, but you can see all sorts of influences. And that's, you know, maybe a good thing, really, of course, because we're seeing customers here uh, come from all around the world, from South America, from India, uh, from, you know, China. Of course, they can't import the, uh, they can't use these uh, these old cars on the road, but that looks like it's going to be changing. Um, Australia as well, and New Zealand, of course, our home uh, countries. Um, yes, you know, the, the, the whole uh, 
world in terms of new cars and classic cars is changing certainly mm, absolutely well of course a fellow british brand mg now uh, part of saic yes. in in yes, uh, china right. and pretty much one of the only car manufacturers at the moment bucking the trend and increasing their sales absolutely, year yeah. on year um, yeah incredible so well there's a there's a there's a there's a dealership here in chelmsford and uh, you know they uh, they appear to be very busy and i've noticed quite a few on the road so they're doing something right. It does beg the question why we couldn't do that, but mm. uh, there you are. <laughs> yeah, interesting, isn't it? Of course, in the 1950s and 1960s, when Jaguar were making things like the uh, XKs, or 140s and 150s, suits, the E-types, the big market was America. And now, of course, the big market is China. Yeah. And if you can sell into those yes, markets, then then you're yes, doing well. Um, and not unusual but for I... manufacturers to look outside their own country for the bigger market. We, and we as a business, you know, we've got to look around the world. We really have. But just coming back on the modern Jaguars, um, you know, I think they're almost almost moving into that same sort of market segment that they were in the 1950s and 60s um, because they are producing, in my opinion, um, some excellent cars right at the forefront of um, of technology with um, with electric uh, powertrains, especially with the with the iPACE, um, and you know they're not desperately expensive. They they still represent you know luxury and performance at you know a, a reasonable cost, shall we say, a reasonable cost. Um, so uh, I, I think Jaguar, you know, modern day Jaguar, are doing pretty well, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as the modern cars obviously feed customers into the older car market in many ways by raising yes. awareness of the brand, how have you seen customers that are coming to Wood and Mortimer change? And, and who is your customer now? Who is it that comes <laughs> and in, involves themselves in buying a classic car from you? <laughs> well, the phone rings and you just you just don't know. Um, inquiries from uh, we've had I've dealt with an inquiry recently from uh, from a, a, an internet uh, you know, um, billionaire from the United States, uh, and a young guy who's looking at uh, one of our um, uh, WMGT projects. Um, you'll have the traditional market. You'll have the the guy that's grown up with with Jaguar, or like me, grandfather or father had Jaguars, and uh, maybe has some money to spend, and has always wanted an E-Type um, or a Mark II or whatever, and comes along. Um, you've got inquiries, as I said, from the Far East and South America, um, where you know they've they've looked at Jaguars and and thought, well, you know, now I can afford one. Um, they're still beautiful, etc. Etc. So it's very difficult to say, uh, Wayne, you know, a, a target market. Of course, with the racing and being Milamige uh, sponsors, that does give us uh, uh, an insight into the, uh, should we say, the upper end of the, the market and particularly the racing market, of course. Um, but it's, I, I really couldn't say, you know, we do have an average customer. They like the cars. They, they're all pretty much just bespoke, to be honest. You could be dealing with, you know, a, a, a 30 year old in California or a 75 year old in South America or a 55 year old from Birmingham. It, it just, there is no, no, uh, uh, there's no yardstick at all, I'm afraid. What does seem to be a common theme across most owners coming into classic car scene that we see here in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, I wonder if that's the same view, is that they're buying cars less now for investment purposes, so less for putting into glass glass boxes and waiting for prices to change, but more about a lifestyle that they want to access uh, and a set of experiences that they want to access. Is that what you're seeing as well? Most definitely. People now, over the last, especially this last few months, um, they're looking at their cars, they want to use them, they want to enjoy them, um, they want to take them on rallies, and many more inquiries about the uh, uh, Mille and also for next year, and also the uh, the Copper Rally as well in Italy in January next year. And people are just, I think these difficult times, people are almost sort of getting back to their roots and thinking, well, you know, it's not, 
just something that I can think, okay, I paid this for it and now it's worth this and, you know, that gives you a warm feeling. Um, but we're seeing very much more the enthusiasts that actually want to drive the cars. And, of course, our, uh, our modern upgrades for um, Jaguars, uh, classic Jaguars, really do help people to do that. I mean, let's not underestimate, Wayne, the, uh, the, the difficulty in driving uh, some very old cars in modern traffic. Um, because a lot of drivers um, have got no real experience of, of driving uh, cars, uh, you know, uh, of that age and braking systems being what they were, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be a little bit hair-raising experience in modern traffic, and we can change that. We can, uh, we can, you know, cope with all different suspension settings, braking systems. We can add air conditioning, satellite navigation, um, you know, Apple Play, all of that sort of thing. And frankly, that. That's what we're seeing people, you know, asking for. They want to use the car. They don't want it just sat in the corner of their garage. Um, and that's wonderful because it gives these cars, you know, another another life, really. Mm, absolutely. Well, you mentioned they're upgrading them tastefully no doubt of course but uh, this yeah. is something this is something that we're seeing more and more of it's not necessarily and we mustn't get this confused with sort of the resto mod scene that we've seen or or replicas no. or anything like that this is very simple no. tweaks to cars that make them just a little bit more reliable to use on european travels yeah. and it could be as simple as yeah. electric ignition instead of points and stuff like that that's the sort of thing we're talking about Absolutely. And of course, you know, having said we can upgrade things and we can, we, you know, there are people, a significant number of people who just want them original. And of course, there's a, you know, that's fine. You know, that's absolutely fine. You know, we can, we can upgrade them to their original spec. We can replace, we can renew, uh, we can restore. But um, sometimes it's, it, it can be difficult, frankly, to sort of guide customers because the options are so wide with our techni technicians here. Um, that really it's, it's sort of and you have to try and get a feel of what the customer is looking for what are they going to use the car are they going to use the car or do they just want it kept original um, so you know we go through a fairly painstaking process of taking time to find out from the customer what their requirements are and then how we can you know realistically um, you know achieve that and I'd like to think most of the time we do yeah that's a top tip really for anyone listening who is looking to get into the world of classic Jaguar ownership is just to sit back and think about why you're buying the car and what you're going to do with it once you've bought it and really that will help people to buy the right car and and it's when people like you come in and and it's your expertise that can help a customer find the right car for them at that point isn't it Yes, and also even you know relatively small things as well. Like um, you know, um, I, uh, I I think uh, like most of us, I did put on a bit of weight during lockdown, and um, you know we've all got bigger over the years. So some of the cars can be a little bit tight. Um, so uh, again, our engineers here have have really found ways to find a you know a couple of centimeters here and there with seat alignment and and that sort of thing and we can literally measure customers up and 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 and, and you know help them as much as possible so that uh, uh, so it's a more comfortable drive and you know we you know we forget frankly how good modern cars are in that respect you know when did you last get in a a modern car um and and not be able to get the seat in the right position or something like that so um and again younger customers are not used to having to sort of fold themselves up and 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 you know make do and mend as it were so again we'll help them with that as well with reach and steering as much as possible obviously given the sort of physical limitations of the car mm -hmm. yeah well it's a little bit like buying a tailored suit now it sounds like it's <laughs> well i just in fact i just put that in an email funny enough to, to a customer saying it's a bit like a bespoke suit because he was saying well you know what what you know how will this fit and, and i said well actually it's a bit like a bespoke suit we'll we'll try and get the best fit possible obviously we've got the, the physical dimensions of the car uh, that we you know would be would struggle to alter um but you know we will do our best and be surprised how much uh, you know we, we can improve things yeah. yeah amazing i suppose you're seeing now a tranche of 
customers coming in who have just come into that point in life where they've got the money to enter into the world of sort of high-end classic cars, but perhaps they've never in their driving career had to deal with things like a choke, for example. Do you, are you starting to see that now? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, you, you are seeing that. And, you know, where do I plug my phone in and, and things like that? I mean, it's not a joke. Um, and... Uh, so, again, there is this sort of almost two elements, really. There are uh, the customers that uh, will, will want their car kept original as possible, and we do complete restorations, uh, you know, and bring these cars back to life. And then the, the customers that really want to use them as much as possible, and they want to use them in modern traffic. Um, obviously, we do our, um, our Milamige spec cars, so the customer's taking part in that, um, and we will take part, we will take care of everything to do with that. So, we will you know our, our our race support division will actually support customers there on a day-to-day basis we've got a hundred percent finish uh, uh, record for the Minamiga so uh, you know we're anxious to to maintain that um, so um, we are used to customers using their cars um, but uh, the customers king really they whatever they want we're here to you know to, to supply really well, if you have a look at the website at woodham-mortimer.com, uh, there's some amazing cars pictured on the website, actually. And I've just actually spotted, looking through as we're talking, the XK120 that Norman Jewis drove at Jebeka for the high-speed uh, record attempt yes. as well. Um, yes. So yes. let's show off a little bit now, Paul. Tell us about some of the amazing Jaguars you've had through the doors. Well, you, you name them all, really. I mean, we've had them all here, really, from, from uh, you know, C-types, D-types, everything, really. Um, we've got an amazing um, XK150S here at the moment, which is probably the best one I've ever seen. Um, 120s do seem to be in vogue at the moment. So, uh, um, you know, we're, uh, we're seeing more of them and we've been getting asked questions by, uh, by particularly overseas customers for XK120s and 140s. So um, that's maybe a trend that is, is, is building at the moment. We've got an amazing um, series uh, to Jaguar here, which is, which is a new Jaguar underneath an XJ40 underneath. Um, so it's got it's got it's got uh, you know the um, the four liter um, supercharged engine. Um, it's got the J gate gearbox, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's even got the modern uh, door mirrors and everything. So that is effectively a new uh, Mark II uh, Jaguar saloon, um, completely restored, complete new interior. Uh, we're just doing some new photographs on that at the, at the moment. Um, so E types, um, every type of E type. You could mention from flat floors to lightweight. Um, you know, we've seen them all. We really have. We really have. You know, to um, and just walking around the showroom, and particularly the workshop. Um, it's raining here at the moment, so I won't walk. <laughs> I won't walk through the workshop while I'm on the phone. Um, but um, there are um, lots of, and I would say by saying lots, I say we've probably got at least five XK120s here uh, that we're working on for the uh, for customers for uh, the Milamige. Uh, and the uh, copper rally for next year. So, um, we'd, as I said uh, earlier, you know, we'd love to invite your your, uh, your members here, not all of them at once. Um, but um, uh, so you can have a look round, and, and uh, you know, once it's safe to do so with the health crisis and things like that, um, we'd, we'd love to, to to be able to show show you around. Well, it's a fantastic facility you've got there. And when you think of classic car workshops, it's easy to imagine that sort of dusty, dark shed with a craftsman working away by candlelight. But this is far from it, isn't it? I mean, these are almost Formula One, these facilities you've got. It's like an operating theatre, to be honest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a cross between an aircraft hangar and an operating theatre. Um, so, again, that's been very important during these uh, these COVID times as well. That So we've got plenty of space is one thing we're not short of. Um, plenty of space um, for our to keep our staff safe, uh, which is important. And of course, uh, those visitors are able to visit us. Customers are coming along. You know, we're we're making sure that they're uh, they're safe as well. Um, so we've got plenty of space. Um, it's a wonderful place to work. I can assure you. Um, and uh, you know, I never ever get phased by the wonderful Jaguars that we've got here. Mm, lovely. Well, obviously, the most important thing when working on Jaguars is that knowledge and and talent really to work on such intricate uh, and sometimes complicated cars 
How are you finding, as you go forward as a business, recruiting that talent and finding that knowledge and expertise to work on these cars? Is finding new people a worry for you as we go forward into the future? Well, I think that there's, uh, there's always been a policy really of sort of growing our own wood, if you like. Um, and we do have a, a programme uh, for um, apprenticeships and things like that um, to help us with uh, with um, with retention of staff. Um, so... In terms of skills, um, there's a lot of knowledge here, but there's a lot of shared knowledge as well. So uh, not everyone, no, no one can know everything. The technicians here are, I'd like to think, uh, that they are world class. And so we do everything we can to support them with the best equipment uh, and the best possible working environment. Um, so uh, I think there is sometimes a sort of, thought that uh, you know all of these skills are dying out and that uh, you know they, none of these skills would exist and i have to say i i don't agree with that you know we've got some very very talented young guys here um that uh, are very very dedicated and know their stuff um so so uh, from my point of view um i think that uh, one thing the uk is good at is uh, these traditional um skills and um, you know, I'm pleased to say that we we support and enhance that when wherever wherever we possibly can. I mean, you in restoring these amazing cars, you are really at the coalface in terms of finding sourcing parts, using parts. How have you seen the quality of parts, and what challenges do you have to deal with day to day on on that front? Because something we hear a lot about here at the club that the quality of parts is a problem out in the market at times. It can be, and of course, you know, there's an awful lot of fraud at the moment, um, especially with uh, COVID, people not being able to travel and see things. Um, you know, there, there, there is a lot of, uh, unfortunately, fraud in, in that particular area. Um, so people have, we have to be careful, everyone has to be careful. We source parts really from all over the world, and we've got some very, very good um, trusted suppliers um, that we can go to. Um, in terms of finding the cars, of course, it's not the, the selling of the cars. Some people say that uh, you can have a trained monkey selling them, and some people say we've got a trained monkey selling them. Um, but um, it's actually sourcing the cars. It's finding the cars. Um, it's finding the cars around the world um, and finding uh, the, you know, the correct parts, et cetera, et cetera. We can actually manufacture parts as well um, to a limited point of to a limited uh, um, point of view, um, but we mostly are okay. We we're able to um, to source parts, but you know, yes, it can be difficult, and you can wait for the right part for the right car. It's just the nature of it, really. Well, you certainly seem to manage to find some amazing cars. And uh, I, I think your website should come with some kind of health warning, because if you do go on there, you will fall in love instantly with the number of the cars <laughs> well, so. that's uh, for sale. I've just done this. I've been looking through the cars you've got for sale at the moment. And there's a very late XK120 that you've got in at the moment, a very late in that it was built in 1953. But it's been superbly modified at some point in its life to look like a C-type at the front and have these lovely recessed lights at the rear fascinating looking car they are out there and you know the, the, the more we that's why we, we're so pleased to be able to to speak directly to your members because the more we engage with the jaguar community that helps us and we like to think you know it helps it helps you as well um it helps the owners so um the cars you know we constantly get phone calls about cars that haven't seen the light of day for you know 20 30 years uh, that are tucked away in barns and all sorts of things. Uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to think all of that sort of thing is just, uh, you know, industry talk, but it, it does happen. It does happen. And, uh, uh, you know, cars that um, were never known about um, that suddenly pop out uh, literally out of the woodwork. Um, so that's the really fascinating point of uh, the, the, the job, part, part of the job for me. And also as well, um, when you look at these, um, these cars, these, you know, these, especially when they're restored, you know, you think, well, you know, who sat in these cars? What dramas have been unfolded, unfolding in the car over the year? What stories could the, could the car tell if it could talk? Um, so, you know, without getting too romantic, um, I think 
that uh, you know that really is a fascinating uh, aspect to, to what we do here at Woodham Mortimer. Absolutely, and uh, I urge anyone to have a look at that website, woodham-mortimer.com. Have a look through the car sales. That's there, it. Really. That's right. Yeah. And more more cars and more pictures shortly. To be honest, yes. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, so, and we're also on the usual uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram, and uh, I'm just started on Twitter. To be perfectly honest, we are on there, um, but I thought I'd uh, I'd have a go uh, at uh, tweeting a bit more often. So look out for for, for tweets uh, from me on on uh, on at uh, Wooden Mortimer. Brilliant, we will do. Paul, if you uh, have a, a car that needs some love and attention, and perhaps even a full restoration project. What's the process and how does it all come together as a project? I think, you know, a general discussion, really, um, about, uh, you know, your, about the car and uh, how long you've owned it, um, you know, uh, whether you've just acquired it, whether it's been the family a long time, um, and what really, what, what aspirations have you got for the car? What are you going to do with it? Uh, do you want to sell it? Do you, uh, do you want to keep it? Do you want to pass it on, put it in your will, uh, pass it on to your favourite grandson? Um all of that sort of thing. And then uh, really a look at the car, a, a, a good look at the car um, with um, the workshop manager um, and a walk around the car and just really a question of, you know, ag- agreeing what needs doing, um, what you want doing, um, how long it's going to take um, and how much it's going to cost uh, and that sort of thing. And then and then we'll get, we'll agree um in a you know hopefully a hopefully a one page sort of email uh that and then we put that into a contract and we both sign it and then we we, we crack on you know um so it's not terribly complicated as i said earlier there is so much bespoke that is bespoke you really have got to do that people say people occasionally phone up and say you know send me your price list well we we can't really do that because we don't have one you know what what is it you're looking for and and you know how can we do that that needs to be discussed and agreed each customer and each car is different and looking at the market generally what should we be buying paul for the future well, I think that um, there's certainly something going on with XK120s at the moment. Um, you know, maybe that's just a, you know something that's picked up peculiar to Wood and Mortimer. I don't know, but XK120s, XK140s, um, the E-type market has always been a pretty much a barometer of the overall health uh, or not of the of the uh, the home classic car market. Um, and we're seeing signs that the the very top of the market, the very top of the market is actually quite buoyant. Um, uh, it's a bit more difficult further down during these, these, these difficult times. Um, I absolutely love XJSs and I've had several um, and we love them here as well. We've got, we've got several here. Um, and when, when are XJS prices going to, to start moving upwards? Um, you know, uh, they, they are going up. They've been going up steadily. Um, so I think there's a whole generation that really are, you know, the new people coming into the classic mar- car market are looking at the XGS with slightly different, slightly different viewpoint to uh, say some of their mature customers. Um, and it is an amazing car. It's a very striking car. I know it caused an awful lot of controversy when it came out. And how you, how were you ever going to uh, replace the E-Type? Um, but they can be bought, you know, very, um, you know, well. Um, and there's some very good examples out there. Uh, again, you know, be careful. Um, but I would say, you know, if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking for to a first time entry, um, into the budget end, um, of the Jaguar classic market, then, you know, consider an XJS, really. Mm-hmm. Great tip. And we love the XJS here in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, and we get more and more of them along to events as the years go on, and they're, they're great to see. Yeah. And, uh, racing is also very important to you as a business, isn't it? How are you seeing the racing being affected by uh, the recent pandemic? Obviously, the number of grids has gone down throughout the year. We're in lockdown for so much of it. Has that taken a hit to your side of the business on preparing cars? I'd like to, I mean, obviously, there's been less racing. There's been less of everything. Um, but... Uh, 
again, it's given it's given us an opportunity to uh, for for race cars for for people to say actually you know what I, you know, I'd like you know I'd like a complete overhaul I'd like this I'd like that actually I've got another car or I'm thinking of buying another car. Um, in terms of the the major events, um, then of course. There is, there has got to be a question mark, you know, over over what's going to happen. But I think there's also really a feeling of of trying wherever possible to uh, to, to I won't say carry on and get used to new normal but you know what i mean it's you know at some stage you know we are going to come out of this crisis and maybe sometimes with some cars and some events pretty hitting the pause button has given uh, owners um a chance to to reconsider what they've got what they're driving what they'd like to drive and also what events they would like to take part in so uh the the, the has obviously got to be one of the you know the, the bucket list uh, <laughs> Um, events uh, for everyone that's uh, lucky enough to to have a qualifying car. Um, so, uh, and we got on very well with them. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous event, and uh, and uh, that's you know it's, it's reduced for for this year, of course. But uh, you know, it'll still be some wonderful, wonderful times. Well, of course, if you want to have any work done to your Jaguar, if you've got a restoration project you need to address, or indeed if you want to buy a car, it's just got cheaper at Wood and Mortimer because. Paul, you've uh, you've uh, very kindly offered our members a discount, haven't you? Tell us more. Yes, yes, you've twisted my arm, and um, (laughs) I was pleased to have it twisted because uh, yes, we um, we're offering uh, Jaguar Enthusiast Club members a ten percent reduction uh, on all workshop uh, work uh, with orders placed with us up until Christmas this year. Uh, just to uh, to sort of help the wheels, literally, um, and say hello to to the club, really. Fantastic. Well, that's an opportunity not to be missed, and you can find out more about them, of course, via that website at woodham-mortimer.com. You'll also be able to see uh, links and articles in Friday Spotlight Newsletter and, indeed, Jaguar Enthusiast magazine in the forthcoming weeks as well, so keep an eye out for those. But uh, uh, for now, Paul, thanks for joining us on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Not at all. Wayne, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.